0: Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing a writer who really needs no introduction, but we're going to give him one anyway, Stephen King. Even if you're not a fan of his work, you know who Stephen King is. Known simply as the master of horror, King has published 62 novels to date, five nonfiction books and some 200 short stories in a body of work that began in the 1970s and continues to this day. By the time this podcast comes out, his 63rd novel will have dropped, and his 64th is expected next year. His full bibliography is far too long to list here, but his greatest hits is longer than most other authors' entire catalogs. Just a few of his standouts include Carrie, The Shining, The Stand, The Dark Tower, It, Misery, Gerald's Game, The Green Mile, Bag of Bones, and Mr. Mercedes. Having sold more than 350 million books and counting over the course of his career, Stephen King is one of the best-selling fiction authors of all time, falling somewhere between Alexander Pushkin and Louis L'Amour. He has had 30 novels become number one bestsellers, a feat unmatched by any of his literary peers. His work has been adapted into 48 feature films and 29 television productions. Granted, a lot of those are not great. But when one looks at King's impact in terms of creative output, commercial impact, and popular acclaim, he seems less like a single author and more like an entire industry. He's been nominated for 279, 279, 279 different awards for his work, and has won 107 of them, including an unprecedented 15 Bram Stoker Awards, multiple British Fantasy, World Fantasy, and Locus Awards, two Shirley Jackson Awards, a Hugo Award, a Hammett Prize, an Eisner Award, and the O. Henry Award. He's also received the World Fantasy Awards for Life Achievement, the Grand Master Award from the Mystery Writers of America, and 16 other Career and Lifetime Achievement Awards. King's success and acclaim can be credited to how he honors basic techniques of great storytelling. He mastered the genre conventions of horror, terror, and revulsion, as well as the literary devices of foreshadowing, callback, and payoff, all to deliver stories that live rent-free in your head long after you experience them. He captures audiences with his intriguing premises, and he keeps us hooked with mesmerizing levels of detail, evocative small-town settings, and convincing glimpses into days gone by. He builds characters who feel real and flawed and instantly invest the reader in their outcomes, even if they are only to be dispatched a few pages after their introduction. He's a master's master, a writer who has worked so long and hard at at his craft that he makes everything about it look kind of impossibly easy, even though anyone who has ever told a story knows that it is not. So let's get into it. With me today is Tactical Intervention Specialist for Quitters Incorporated, Chris Crenshaw. We get results. (laughs) man in black look-alike Tom Hespos
1: did the Red Sox pull it off? did they?
0: and serving as alderman for the towns of both Derry and Castle Rock Joe Pace
2: get busy living or get busy dying Oh, true true
0: All right. so to get us started Chris I'd like you to take the first moment here because you go kind of right to the beginning of King's rather impressive career and you focus on an area that doesn't get a lot of
3: talk honestly when people talk about his career So, so why don't you take it away But the first King I wrote was probably Pet Cemetery, around the time that that film came out. Uh, I read a few other of his novels and I really, I liked him, but as time went on, I, I liked him less until I read his early short stories. Night Shift and Skeleton Crew were two early short story collections he did. The first one was, I think, published in 81, Night Shift, and it collected stories that ranged from 1968 to previously unpublished. Skeleton crude did, you know, covered a similar period of time, although it was published a few few years later. And I, I gotta tell you, the, these books are absolutely fantastic. I was an English major in college, like you, Bill, I, I, and and I focused on American lit, where the short story was more important than yeah. it was in, say, English lit. And I personally, it's my favorite genre, and Stephen King is a master of it on the level of poe or yeah. anyone else yeah. um uh, th- these stories are honestly a little astonishing because <laughs> he's so young when he's writing these yeah and and yeah. and and from the very beginning he it seems like he's already mastered this craft he he can put his finger on what's going to make you scared or uncomfortable or weirded out or maybe make you wake up in the middle of the night tonight and mm-hmm. and and he and he nails it every time his characters are so well drawn uh, you know going back and and rereading some of this i didn't recognize you know on my first reading how honestly progressive king was that's a big part of all of these stories or a lot of these stories um he, he is you know rejecting right wingery and and mm. showing a lot of empathy and i think that that empathy is why his characters are so well drawn that the guy know like at, at 22 he seemed to know and understand what would drive a woman to hate her husband or yeah. or a husband to want to kill his wife well i knew that and <laughs> well i didn't at 22. <laughs> but i I mean all (laughs) these characters in these stories are really almost universally well drawn probably the most famous story is children of the corn yeah and you know this isn't something that's particularly portrayed in the movie as i recall it but the whole opening of that story and in fact the whole tragedy of the story is that you know the, the the people coming into this little nebraska town their their husband and wife they're trying to save their marriage they kind of hate each other and and king really just he 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 dissects it and it's uncomfortable and it's awful and and you you kind of hate both of of the protagonists and then and then what happens happens and and you feel like oh well (laughs) king is really good at this stuff yeah Um, he really is there's so many stories uh even though i I, he, he is he can be repetitive strawberry spring and the man who loved flowers are almost the same story yeah. Well,
0: yeah. he was doing a lot of magazine writing where he was just yeah. selling these things off one at a time. So it's right. not like he meant for them to be collected, uh, per se. So there is you see that and, and you would even see that with
3: Robert E. Howard, like the people who just sure, wrote, sure. wrote by the word, by the piece, some repetition is going to yeah. happen. Trucks has everything to do with the mist. You know, that those are very similar stories. Yeah.
2: Well, just remember, it's a, it is a shared universe. So it's okay.
3: Yeah, well, I, I yeah, it's that one of the greatest redconnings of all time. Hang on, <laughs> I, I think that applies more than <laughs> novels. But but Salem's Lot takes place in the same universe as One for the Road from Night Shift. Yeah, the stories in these collections are really wonderful and excellent. And despite their dated references and, and outlook, the humanity of them really yeah. it, it, it's it it holds up and. Yeah. I think that night shift is maybe the more even of the collections, but Skeleton Crew has just some amazing stuff. I mean, you know, in Skeleton Crew, Stephen King does sci-fi Damn. twice. Yeah, The Mist. Oh, oh The Mist. Oh, <laughs> oh The and Mist is so I, good. The Monkey is a great story, uh, and, and and my personal favorite is The Raft. Uh, which oh. is a a story where yes. you know these four yep. college kids go out in October for their last you know summer fling before it gets too cold, go into a raft and in, in the middle of a lake and, and get trapped there by this oil slick creature. Yeah, <laughs> and like and, and it's so horrifying. It it really oh, is just <laughs> horrifying. Oh man, but but you know the the reactions of the characters are so real and. I have never been a huge Stephen King fan, but my goodness, my respect for him just couldn't be higher. Uh,
0: Joe, Tom, do you guys have any particular attachment to, the, to these early short stories?
2: I'm, I'm with Chris that the raft is is excellent. And frankly, as a kid who's grown up in New England lakes <laughs> um, and we have a raft at our place on the lake. And every time I get out there, I have to take a look around and make sure that there's no oil slicks before I try to swim back to shore. But and that's one that actually got made for one. Of creep the show too.
3: Yeah. A, yeah. yeah,
2: they they made that, and they actually were fairly um, yeah. faithful yeah. To, well, to it. I haven't seen but that to,
3: Joe. I can't wait, dude. Say, it's awesome.
2: Pull it up.
0: And and, yeah. and George it's, it's George short. Romero was involved in that too. Actually, I think he actually, I think he actually helped write the screenplay of it. I think. And then some. Yeah, it's not a complicated screenplay. No, no,
2: no. Um, <laughs> and, and that's kind of that speaks to what I wanted to mention to, to Chris's point. That part of King's success is there's a simplicity. Even though, even though his talent and his ability to layer and find nuance, there's a there's a simplicity to his narrative structure. He, like he, he early on masters this happens, then that ha- then this happens, then this other thing happens, and the characters are complex and sometimes the plots are complex, but you never feel like you're trying to hold it all together in your arms. Like you get it, you're able mm-hmm. to follow it along, and you're able to. Um, and then he's a master too of atmospherics. Yeah, I, I think that is probably the the single greatest. Thing that, that he does is he masters atmospherics. whether that's you know sort of the creepy small new england town or you know chris you mentioned children of the corn already you're wandering through cornfields and you are you're lost and you're yeah. unsure and and he just places you right in the middle of these situations with um with his ability you know his descriptive and with and
3: with characters that you recognize yeah
2: well that's just they're normal yeah. people yeah, right like really he are. doesn't write superheroes he writes like you and me in the middle of a cornfield where some weird stuff's about to go down. Yeah.
3: yeah. And, and, and yet on the other hand, you know, one of the, one of the stories called the last rung on the ladder, there's nothing horror about it. And yet it's probably the most horrifying story. Which one is that one? I, it, I forget. It, it, it's it's <clears> the story about a young man or a man gets a letter from his sister. He, he's narrating the stories. I got the letter and, you know, it was the one thing that can make me come And, and, he tells the story of how he barely saved his sister's life when she dove out of the loft of the barn. And later she commits suicide after he has spent the rest of his life neglecting her. And it's horrifying. It's painful. Yeah. It's not a horror story, but it's horrifying. You yeah. know, it, it, yeah. King is really good at this stuff.
1: There are so many short stories and, and other like stories of his. Uh, I've just been utterly creeped out by like that, Chris. I know exactly what you're talking about. Well, what's the one that they turned into apt people? I think it had a different title. Is that, was it titled that? I think it was titled something else. I could be wrong. No, it was. I mean, at,
0: yeah, at, yeah. That was some different it's, seasons.
1: I, I went, I used to go down to my grandfather's place on vacation in Florida for like you know these long, boring periods when I was a kid, and I remember like plucking a Stephen King collection off his shelf one time, and I remember reading that story and just feeling it like very visceral level, like the main character in that thing and it, it is becoming evil, and I was like, it, it, it struck me so much, and I was like, but there's something really just very, very familiar about this, yeah. and when I got to the end of it, I said to myself oh, you know what, I had been in the exact same situation like five or six years prior, I had been at my grandfather's house, yeah. <laughs> completely bored out of my mind, and had read it back then too. And yeah. I think it was interesting that like, I didn't remember reading it, but I remembered the feeling of just being utterly creeped out yeah. by the main character in that book. We'll get to it, we'll yeah. get to it. Yeah. Oh my God, later. <laughs>
0: Chris, Night Shift was my introduction to Stephen King as well. When I was in middle school, I think it was, some kid in homeroom was reading it in front of me like i, I was in you know i had this good relationship with this kid in front of me he and i read a lot and we're always talking about what we're going into he's like oh i'm reading the stephen king book Have you heard about stephen king i'm like no he's like you know he's so scary and he shows me the book with the original thing with this wacky cover with like this hand <laughs> like just with all these eyeballs coming out of the fingers like warts you know And it's like kind of half wrapped like a mummy like what is that i was like immediately like well i gotta check this out and so i borrowed it off him and i just devoured that book it really unsettled me some of the stories more so than others but some of them really stuck with me and really really bugged me there's one it's not considered to be a great story of his but it's called the boogeyman oh it's a great story yeah so good oh, oh, oh holy moly dude this guy's talking to this this shrink about he's basically been stalked by this horrible boogeyman monster that hides in the closet and comes out and like does horrible things to people and then it turns he's out like the and his wife yeah yeah eating <laughs> his kids because the door is always open just a crack so it's the whole plays on the whole your closet never really closed deal and then at the end like you know the the psychiatrist is the boogeyman coming out from and like the guy's last sensation is him urinating himself before it eats him and like <laughs> as a 13 year old kid or whatever i was like what the heck i just blew my mind apart. And I just went through all of them. And some of them were like like Battleground was another great story, which is like not uh, a scary story. It's just like a great like outer limits kind of story. fun. Yeah, totally,
3: totally an episode of totally,
0: yeah, just a super fun story uh about this hitman who gets a very unusual form of revenge against, you know, I Adam I and just it's just it's just wild. But so many of these stories really unsettled me, Chris, and in such a way that I, I went ahead and read Skeleton Crew. But Night Shift, like, stood out as, like, this, like, necronomicon of fiction for me. (laughs) Like, I had read things I couldn't unread, and it really rattled the hell out of me. And granted, I was an impressionable kid. This is around the time when, like, slasher movies were all over the place. So, like, I'd see, like, an advertisement for, like, Motel Hell or something on TV and get, like, all wigged out for the night. So perhaps reading Stephen King wasn't the best thing for me. But I actually didn't read a lot of Stephen King during the heyday because I remember how freaked out I was by the Stephen King I did read. I kind of wish I had read more of his stuff, but I would say, it's taken as a compliment, Mr. King, (laughs) that you got me so bad with the short stories, I'm like, I can go no further. (laughs) Like, I gotta tap
3: out, man, it's killing me. That cover that you were talking about was that image of the hand with the eyes is from uh, the story, I Am the Doorway, which is absolutely stellar king does i don't know king does a lot of stuff that i think is cool like he opens it with jerusalem's lot which is it, it's a lovecraft story yeah I mean, yeah it, it's straight up it's it's just you know lovecraft fan, fan.
2: Well, lovecraft is a huge influence mm-hmm. for him he, he big talks time about that. big time and yet he's so
3: modern i am the doorway that is like presaging clive barker yeah uh, you know uh, uh, the, the king king is he he had the past in his pocket he had the future in his hand
2: he's unflinching like he comes to a situation like and when i when i've written before i'll I'll come to a situation where i've got to write something maybe that's a little gross or a little awkward or a little uncomfortable and you 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 wrestle with how to and maybe you dance around it a little bit and you don't take it head on he just says what happens and then he Mm -hmm. and then he took the axe and hit her 17 (laughs) times oh okay i guess you can just say that right like and 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 I, I've always admired that because I've always struggled with that in my own writing to to come right at yeah. something that's unpleasant or difficult. And he just says it the same way that he would say, and then he walked into the next room. Yeah. And there's a matter of factness to his storytelling that that makes it yeah. pop for me. Yeah,
0: but no, but night night shift is um not just a great introduction. To, to King and that's just a great first chapter in his career, but it's just a banger of a short story collection. Parts of Night Shift have lived rent free in my head since I was you know a kid, and and I haven't gone back to it in part because I don't want to scare the crap out of myself again, uh, and in part but also in part because like there's a purity to that that reaction. Like he got such a great rise out of me. And it's lasted for decades. Like, I kind of don't want to revisit that, you know? And it's not often I have a lot of writers whose work I've taken in that have had that kind of, like, tectonic impact upon me. But but this, this book did, and I will never, ever, ever forget it. We'll move on to the next uh, moment, which is going to be mine. So my moment of truth is going to be from the Bachman books. Early on, I guess, and I'm not quite entirely sure why he did this, but Stephen King wrote Under the Pseudonym of Richard Bachman. And produced a number of earlier novels under that name. And they didn't do that great, but I guess once he kind of broke out with Carrie and became a real big deal, the idea was somebody realized, well, you know, they had these basically Stephen King novels under another name and they should really just go back and actually, you know, and actually put them out, you know, to kind of ride the wave. Because in the eighties, I mean, you couldn't go anywhere without seeing people reading a Stephen King book. Like you went to the pool in the summertime, like yeah. one out of every three moms was reading a Stephen King book. Right? It was like there was everywhere. So Of course they're going to re-put the the Bachman books out as, as, you know, by the way, as Stephen King. And he had a really funny introduction to that where he was kind of grousing over the fact, like, yeah, 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 you just bought it because it's Stephen King. It's like, dude, that's okay. (laughs) It's okay. You you can be Stephen King. The Bachman books have four pretty freaky novellas in them. Uh, One is Rage, which I can't even go back to because it's basically like a very grim uh, harbinger of the era of, of of school violence and school shootings and kids coming into school and just and going on a spree. It's I mean it's pretty chilling and as a father with kids in school now, I will not go back to it. But that's not that's not on the story. It's just how well it taps into a fear that has become real. The other one is about road it's called Roadwork. And it's the guy who he's like out of work. He's been he's divorced. He's just you know at the end of his rope. And he lives out in the Midwest. And he's gonna lose his house because this highway is going through his town. And sorry, dude, you're gonna get you're gonna get bulldozed, you know. And so he just basically like barricades himself in the house and like stands off this whole construction crew. And this is kind of this deep dive and like psychological kind of horror. The third is the Running Man, which is a great, great, great story. Everybody knows the. The Arnold Schwarzenegger movie version of it which has got nothing to do with the book like they are really far apart from each other it's a really cool story about what if the most dangerous game was a game show (laughs) the most dangerous game show i guess uh and you've got to stay alive every day and run around america it's it's like it kind of it kind of um it taps into like before america's most wanted was a thing like america's most wanted met american gladiators kind of it it, was that kind of that kind of deal and this guy's constantly running around trying to stay ahead of all of these bounty hunters. And it was just a, a really cool kind of thriller And in America that would let that sort of thing be primetime entertainment, right?
3: Yeah, it was a recognizable future.
0: My favorite one, and the one that's, that really chilled me as a kid, was called The Long Walk and this is a novel that has absolutely stayed with me i read it around the same time as i picked up night shift there's a kid i knew who was like oh you guys have you read the long walk i'm like no i haven't i i shall say and this is probably something that king himself would have found interesting the kid who got me into the long walk i'm fairly confident was a childhood like psychopath like he was not he was not (laughs) right in his head he was prone to, to bouts of unexplainable violence against innocent people and he thought the premise of The Long Walk was the coolest thing ever. And I'm like, this is a horrifying book. And he's like, no, it's awesome. I'm like, this is my red flag. This is my 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 reason <laughs> to bail out of this relationship, right? <laughs> this kid is not right in Lake Mesa. But before there was The Hunger Games, before there was Battle Royale, there was The Long Walk. And The Long Walk is it's just this great – again, you talk about simplicity in stories. This is a simple – Simple story in a near future police state America where, you know, the squads are just rounding up people left and right. Uh, There's this guy running him. He's just the major and he oversees, among other things, the long walk and the long walk is this annual event where they grab 100 teenage kids. Right. Basically, people sign up for it. They don't really get drafted for it. And the idea is that if you win the long walk, you win the prize. And they don't really get into what the prize is. It's, you know, presumably anything you want for the rest of your life. Um, You know, in this police state America, the economy is not so great, some money's really tight. So presumably you are rich and loaded for the rest of your life. Your family doesn't have to worry about things. So there are some people get into this, but the long walk is a horrifying contest. It's basically everybody starts at the Canadian border and they start walking on this highway going south and they're being followed by a military half track, right? Like like half truck, half tank, all machine gun. And they're just keeping this like uh, radar gun on you and you have to walk at 4 miles an hour, okay? Which by the way, if you haven't measured how fast you walk, 4 miles an hour is a brisk walk. Like much that's faster basically than that. a walk, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, I mean that's like competitive walking. Like anything faster than that you're more or less jogging. You just keep walking, and that is that. You stay in the path, and you
2: keep walking. Basically, that's a 15-minute mile, and if you can't maintain a 15-minute mile, that's sufficient to get you kicked off most marathon courses.
0: Exactly, and so the idea is that if you fall below that rate, right, they give you a warning. If you fall below it again, they give you a second warning. If you get a third warning, they shoot you dead on the spot, and they leave your body on the street, and that's it. It is an elimination Olympics. Last guy walking wins. That's it you know, our kind of our hero is just this kid named Ray Garrity. He doesn't really kind of know why he's joining it. Like his mom is really needs the money, but he's just like, you can tell like he's just this kid who sort of is the bewilderment of youth in a dystopian authoritarian regime where nothing really makes sense. The people who are running things are just being cruel for entertainment. And he just sort of becomes like the everyman in the story. And all the people around him, you get to know the fellow walkers and, you know, there's a guy who who's his friend. There's the guy who's the the sicko who gets off and people getting killed. There's a dude who everybody thinks is gonna win. There's the guy who actually has a connection to the major and he's like the nemesis. You know, they just keep walking and one by one they keep dropping off for different reasons. You know, it's just this relentless death march. Even though you get the sense of who's gonna win this whole thing, it's like. By the time you get to it, you feel this gruesome futility that it doesn't matter who wins because the point is the walk persists. The walk is there. And it's going to happen next year too. As a teenager, that story got under my skin in a really big way. What what does tyranny look like? What does cruel power look like? It's as visceral, you know. It's just um, I just uh, I can't I can't quite get away from it, even though I read it so long ago it's people being horrible to people and and king taps on that a lot which is there's nothing scarier than other people right the banality of cruelty dialed up to 11 is a pretty frightful thing and he captures it in the long walk my understanding is that it's the first novel he ever wrote it's not the first he ever sold but it's the first he wrote so it kind of falls in that same zone chris as the night shift era of early king he's just swinging in all directions he'll do whatever the heck he wants to do writing wise he's not pigeonholed or anything and he's just Tapping into whatever freaks him out and writing about it. And it's just, uh, oh, it's so good. It's so good. I haven't read it, Bill. I, I strongly encourage to you to check it out. I think you can buy it separately, but it's definitely in the Bachman Books collection. It's really, and you'll you'll blow through it in an afternoon. It's a real, it's a real quick read. Like most of King's work, it's a real quick read. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that I would agree with that. Sure. Well, no, I mean, sometimes he writes books that are Titanic, but like the pro, the prose moves along quickly. You, yeah, know, yeah, you, that's you, you, you may have a lot to get through, but you know, they're quicker than they are long yeah, yeah I'll, I'll say that
2: I mean, as long as you maintain yeah four miles, miles an hour life. man you get it done in no time at all dude it's not gonna kill you
0: <laughs> i discovered that at a time when i also discovered a couple of his other books i discovered uh thinner the richard bachman book um and i also dis- and actually when i also discovered the dead zone this is that a period of time where you could just like you could just walk around and like wherever you went, King books would just be lying around, right? Like so many people were were reading King. Honestly, you had a chance of walking to some place and there's just a discarded King novel. You just pick it up and start reading it. Like the whole world was a King lending library. (laughs) And King was one of the first writers that, you know, I'd read and I just found myself powerless to stop reading. Like I just picked up dinner for kicks and i was like, what, what's this about? And the next thing I knew I was 75 pages into the book. I'm like, "Whoa, whoa wait a minute. Where did the time go? You know, and I never had, here.
1: I didn't even realize it yet.
0: Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, this is like a 400 page novel. Like I didn't, yeah, it's just one of those, those things. I just didn't realize a book could do that to you. And the dead zone, likewise, like I was at a summer camp type thing and somebody had just put it down and. I just read it like in an afternoon. Like I had like blown off. Like I'd forgotten to go to my class. Like I was just reading this book. Like Bill, where have you been? Like dead zone, man. I I don't know. It's not my fault.
2: (laughs) But you're right. Those are the things you find like at the you know at the hotel or at the motel in like the you know uh, breakfast area or yeah
0: or like the lounge or something right Right.
2: place you're gonna stay overnight and someone's left it by the fireplace that that kind of thing yeah
3: yeah or you know they've got a little lending library shelf and you know just the books that people have been left coffee shop yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Speaking of lending library, this is like I think I have one Stephen King book here at my house, and most of the rest of it is at my mom's place. And I don't think she's (laughs) giving it back anytime soon. Like, I know I have a copy of the Bachman books. It is at my mom's place. I have the series that I'm going to talk about and I have one other king book on my shelf and I know yeah. how many I've read. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you know, you know there's wisdom to the notion of never never lend a book you're not willing to part with forever. <laughs> you know, so if you really love it just buy somebody a copy, don't lend them because you know, you got to be willing to say goodbye to it.
1: I I owe my mom, too, for the number of, you know, books, King books and just books in general that she's she's acquired for me over the years.
0: Plus, you're not (laughs) going to
2: sharpshoot your mom. That's your mom.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The the thing about about King novels, though, I was becoming a, a fledgling reader and I would look. Around everywhere to find something to read. And I would look to my parents' bookshelves to, f- to find something to read, or looked at like my, you know, I'd go over to my friend's house, see what's on their bookshelves. And there's a really wonderful sense of discovery there, you know. And I never thought like I would, I would just, you know, look around, and see what a, see what, what, are the adults reading. And you pull off this like completely compelling and macabre story, like, dude, like adults read some cool stuff. <laughs> you know, this is, this, this is all right. I thought it was gonna be boring. This book is awesome, you know. and. You know, I look back at King very fondly because he was part of my awakening as a reader and and as a writer as well. And I think reading the things of his that I have read have hooked me so deeply that as a young reader, it opened my eyes to the magic of writing and how, what it really means to write a yarn that just grabs somebody and refuses to let them go. And I thought that was an amazing thing. And I I really loved, I loved how that made me feel. And I was like, you know, if I can make somebody else feel like that, what a great thing that would be. I wanted to to cast the spell that, king cast upon me tom (laughs) you're gonna take us a left turn here for sure so walk us through your moment this is an interesting chapter of king's career there's a lot to it i know you've got a story that goes with it what did you choose why did you choose it what does it mean to you
1: It's, it's not a traditional choice but uh you know again i have my mom to thank for this one but i chose the dark tower series you know it, it's not your you know typical horror story that you get you tend to get from king this is basically you know what some people have called his magnum opus there have been times when i've wanted to kill stephen king for what he's done to me, you know, like waiting for new books in this series. And and it all started, like, you know, my, my mom, you know, it's always been my mom's dream to work in a bookstore. And for a time she had, like, she's worked at a couple of bookstores. And, uh, you know, I think part of the, the the benefits of her having worked there were that, you know, new books would just show up all the time. Sure. One time she brings home a book called The Drawing of the Three, which is the second book in the dark tower series what was then supposed to be a trilogy and i i loved everything about this book it's about this guy you know roland deschain who is you know i, I don't want to spoil too much but you know if um like clint eastwood were a knight of the round table that's kind of the character that he is and yeah. The drawing of the three was about him basically pulling together his quartet, which is a term that they use to describe basically like a, a, almost like a family or a tribe of people who were pulled together by fate. This book like made me immediately want to go out and see, all right, this is part of a trilogy. I got to go back and, and get number one, jumped in my buddy's car I you know we we're going to like buy like an album or something like that from the record store, and I'm like I want to stop by the bookstore and see if I can find this other book. And he's like, Oh, wait, you've been reading that? Like that's a Stephen King thing. Yeah, like I've been reading that too, and it's awesome. Like yeah, we've 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 got to get this. So he's like, There's a third one coming out, <laughs> and we're sitting there like with this thing that's supposed to be a trilogy, we're both like very seriously into it and both want to track this thing down. So like I ended up getting the gunslinger. There's the first book in the series. And then the two of us are just like waiting for the third one to come out. <laughs> I I got the drawing of the three, the, the book that my first my mom first got this was back in the like I'm gonna have a car next year. So I'm you know mowing a lot of lawns and doing a lot of jobs so I could save up money for you know yeah. gas. So and then he wrote the Gunslinger in like 1982, it was not until Danny and I were both in college. It was 1991 when The Wastelands came out, which is the wait, third wait, wait, book hold in it. the series. The Gunslinger was in 82? Was it 82? that early? Really? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and- really? He stretched this out, which is the thing that made me want to or kill him. Cause I'm oh like, Oh my god. I got a copy of the Wastelands. This is number three. It's 1991. I got it in the W bookstore. So, like, you know, this is the path <laughs> that we've taken. I, you know, I, I read through the whole thing. I loved every second of it until I got to the end and realized this isn't this isn't wrapping up. This isn't a trilogy. This is something else.
0: <laughs> I'm in this for life. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so we get, you know we get to the wastelands which is the uh, one of the greatest books in the series it is not until 1997 that the next book comes out danny and i are talking like every once in a while we're like dude what is going on with the dark tower what is going on nobody really knows we just know it's not wrapped up yet it was six years later that he came out with the next book in the series and then, you know, it, it, it was like a book every few years until, you know, the end of it, was like it basically wrapped up in 2004, where like you got the final book, which was called The Dark Tower. Okay. And <laughs> it was like 2004, and he has alternate endings in the thing, and you're like, oh, he's so good. Well, like, finally it's wrapped up. No. It's not right.
3: (laughs) It's like watching Clue. Little novellas. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah.
1: There are now you know other books coming out, and you know all all, there's there's a movie that never you know really followed anything that was going on in the series, but uh, it was just a long path that I loved when I had the book, you know, and blew through the book in like three or four days, but time in between was just absolute torture because this story was essentially like, I liken it to like a long DD campaign. It, it, it was, you know, basically Roland, the main character, has to find the Dark Tower. His, his world is falling apart. Uh, reality is basically falling apart. And there are all these, you know, little rules and things that like uh, King interjects along the way. Uh, little ways that reality is sort of like wearing thin in between Roland's world and our world uh, where he's able to kind of slip through. Yeah. And he makes all these great references to all the other stories that he's written too. Like you get all these references to like it and like he, At one point during this arc, he runs into basically himself. He runs into the author of Salem's Lot and uh, the characters, you know, they talk about the Red Sox, (laughs) you know, like there are all these (laughs) odd things coming where he's moving, like in between worlds and everything. It's just this humongous odyssey that I I don't want to give too much away, but holding, you know, someone's attention through all this stuff and making it so compelling and making you care about these characters along the way It's just this immense feat giving all the territory that he covered in this thing. My moment of truth in the book is um, with this character who eventually becomes known as Susanna. She's kind of like this combination between two characters, Mm -hmm. one of whom is a very like innocent sort of passive person and the other is who is like a just vicious, dirty, down in the you know trenches sort of fighter for, during the civil rights movement. Basically, there's a big discussion that Roland is having with this character. She's always referring to. You know, she hates white people because you know that's, that's the character that she is, and this is uh, you know what she does within the civil rights movement. She's you know this just just visceral sort of hateful character. And she's always describing Roland as a honky Mafa and you know, always throwing off these a bit? oh I hate the honky <laughs> you know, all over the place. Roland has had to listen to this over the course of like a couple of books by the time you get to this. And he's he he's basically the quartet has come to a point where there's a there's a break and 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 they're having difficulty figuring out like how they're going to defeat this you know this basically it's like a boss fight
0: yeah the big bad
1: <laughs> and the big bad evil guy roland having no context whatsoever coming from a completely different world has no context for the civil rights rights movement so he asked Susanna, basically how did you fight the honky mafas <laughs> <laughs> get this great moment where like you know roland doesn't realize like everything that has you know gone through he thinks of everything as like a gunfight like you know people shooting at each other he doesn't understand the context behind like a political you know socioeconomic battle so so there's this great moment but then you know in her description of you know how the fight went they come up with the idea to be able to defeat the the, oh that's cool guy which is kind of cool so Um, it, it's, it's, it's it's a neat moment in a, in a series that's filled with a lot of those moments. And I, I again, I just, I loved it to death. The only thing I hated about it was the wait between books.
0: <laughs> right. So I have a couple questions about this series cause I've never read it. Right. But I kind of watched it as it was, as it was coming out and watched the fans go berserk. So how many books total does this dark tower series entail? Is it five, six?
1: I have seven. There's like a novella that and then there's a i believe a short story also that goes with it so right. seven books and change
0: <laughs> as one of these like grand unification story arcs is it written in such a way that you really need to actually read everything else that he's referring to or is it just sort of like it's like the person who walks into you know you know Avengers Endgame without seeing anything else like they can still enjoy it they're just not gonna get all the references like is it is it like that?
1: Like it can stand on its own. You know, I I will recognize like a reference made to it or or something you know because I've read it. But like there were times when I was reading this and you know didn't understand a reference, read the other book and then go, oh that's what they were talking about. (laughs) Because Because it stands on its own. So um, I don't think you miss anything, yeah. not know, you know, not having read the entire body of King's work.
0: Um, so, my other question is, and this kind of violates this podcast rule of keeping self-contained, but I will say that as somebody who just decided to read the entirety of A Song of Ice and Fire one after another and never had to wait through the back-breaking delays in between books, you did the heavy work. You waited, <laughs> right? You you sat along the wall and waited and waited for these books to come out. When somebody skates along and just picks up all seven and reads them in a week, does that kind of is that like a burr under your saddle? Does that bother you at all? It
1: gets me to the point where I have to tell him that long winded story about. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I totally knew it. it. Does and then like if I happen to be with Danny at the time too, he'll join right in because he was right there with me the whole freaking time.
2: <laughs> Speaking, Bill, as a as a guy who picked up um, you know Game of Thrones in, in ninety nine yeah. two thousand like yeah people that are like oh, no no people you, get you, sore you about
0: know. it they get like people who put in that time for a series they love but hate waiting for it they really hold it against like the johnny come lately who just like walk in pick up an arm so up, whatever hey, like
2: george yeah. George, wherever you are, George, put the put the lion cup down. We're still waiting.
0: <laughs> you're never getting it, man. You are never getting those books. Those... <laughs> that is that is yeah, all yeah. on vogue. Yeah, yeah. Never gonna get it. Yeah, you're never gonna yeah. get it. Yeah, it's just it's <laughs> not gonna happen. But <laughs> so, would you say this is your favorite series, your favorite piece of of everything King has done, or do you, or is it like it's not your favorite, but you you it just stands out because you have such a unique relationship to it?
1: I mean, it's a hard question to answer because you know, th- this isn't like King horror for, you know, for the most part. Yeah. It's like fantasy, I mean, right? There are points in this book where you feel like, Oh my God, you know, like there, there's a sense of impending doom and he does that so well. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of hard to compare it to other works that he's done, you know, cause yeah. again, I've read other King stuff, you know, that, that, that just really freaked me out and like you said, stayed with me, but like, <sighs> This is my favorite, just because of the value of the story, and you know. No, Joe, Chris,
0: have you guys read read the series? Do you have any kind of particular feelings on it? I no,
3: not. no, but but I mean, like since like nineteen ninety, I feel like I've heard that oh, Dark Towers where it's really at. Yeah, if you like King, yeah. Dark Towers where it's really at. yeah.
0: Like forget the, forget the major stuff that made his name, like you know. Carrie and Firestarter and Cujo and, and 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 I even heard like like super fans were like The Stand yeah sure Dark Tower like they actually like it was amazing seeing fans put The Stand aside. I guess Tom, that's my big question: Was the wait worth it on this one?
1: It it, it was definitely worth it if if you just stop and you're happy with what King gave you in the first version i don't know what like possessed him to do this but he wrote like here's the ending for the and he he says it in almost these words like here's the ending for the people who are not going to be satisfied with the ending i just wrote (laughs) like who else can do that as an author (laughs) like i i was plenty satisfied yeah i did read the alternate ending too but i was plenty satisfied with with what i got and you know i had a little moment where like yes Yes, sir. I forgive you for the torture of waiting for each and every one of these books. This was fantastic. Yeah,
0: you would wait again. Is what you're is what you're saying.
1: I, I'm not going to say that out loud because I, I think
0: you just did. He he would okay, <laughs> you would will, wait again.
1: Okay, you would wait again.
0: I get it. it. Okay. Uh,
2: What's just, fun about that is I, I get the sense that like he he plays kind of with like parallel dimensions and string theory, and that, that's all part of it. And so the multiple endings plays right into that, right? Sure. Like it's like all things are possible because this isn't a linear storytelling exercise yes. like Rick and Morty. <laughs> uh, okay. I mean, my my uh, intersection with the um, the Dark Tower series, I think it was the summer must have been 93 maybe. I was up I was dating a girl and she was working at a summer camp and I was I would go up there and she was working in the dining hall and I would go up and I I'd, I'd hang out in the cabin where she stayed when she was working. And that was like one of the three books that was in this cabin was the gunslinger. And so I'll just pick somebody. And it was like, this guy's following this other guy across the desert. We don't know who either character is. We don't know why he's following across the desert. We just know there's a desert and there's these guys, Tom, God love you. As far as I know, those guys are still in the desert and one guy is following the other because I never made it past that, but it makes me want to go back and pick it up and and, and try again from, yeah.
1: Try it again, because yeah, I mean, I again, my brother's. I I had the typical experience because I started with the second book and then went back to the first to figure out what happened. But well, uh,
0: Tom, I salute you because you know what? That was from a period of time when you could go to a bookstore. It's like it's like before the rise of like the big like Barnes and Noble and Borders, like superstores, like basically bookstores really meant like Walden. Paperback books. It was like Walden Books in the Mall, right? You know, or, or something like that, where it's like, yeah, like you go to see a series and they'd have chapters two, four, six, and nine. Like, oh, come on, man, help a brother out. I can't get started on this, right? And so you'd be like, but it looks so cool. Maybe I'll buy. You know, I, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna buy chapters two and three. I'm sure I'll find chapters one, four, and five. Like elsewhere. The Dragonlance
2: oh, novels. Yeah, like, yeah. and like then them. you
0: never do, <laughs> and you're like, oh my god, I have a piano missing half the keys. What am I doing here? And oh god, that that was the worst. We're gonna
2: start with West Wing season three. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, no
0: it, it, not. People, yeah. people are like, how can Amazon get so big, dude? You never lived through the hard times, through the dark times, okay? <laughs> The desert. He didn't go through the desert. Okay. We had like, seriously, like, yo man, you got any of those dark tower books I've been looking for? Come on, man, please. I've been looking for 10 years. You got to help me here. Like <laughs> That was a thing. It actually happened. So...
3: I, I worked at a Barnes and Noble back in the day. And, oh, and, man. and, you know, the reason you had that problem was just that the bookstore would try to keep one copy of each of those in, in stock. And well, that was all they needed. But you know, somebody came earlier that week. <sighs> God. Bad
2: luck. <laughs> yeah. Barnes and Noble so long ago it was just border. <laughs> That's
0: a great way to make you hate other fans, though. You know, like, oh man, like, you know, got this. Like, yeah, exactly. You come up with these, like, these, like, Rolo Tomasi alter egos in your head, like this guy who likes exactly what you like, but he's like five minutes ahead of you wherever you go. Like, son of a biscuit, keeps taking my books.
1: Yeah. I mean, man, I was like, <laughs> yeah. like hey, you're,
3: I sure, you're sure you've seen him walking out the door with your book just yeah. as you're yeah, walking exactly. in? Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's like, when nerds battle, drop the
0: books, man. You know? So anyway, all right, next moment of truth, Joe, we're going to move on to you. And um, you picked a really, really good one here because this kind of speaks more towards um, King's literary bent, I would imagine.
2: You know, it's interesting as, as a New Englander, King is like our current like uh, author laureate, if you will. I mean, we've got a literary tradition that includes, you know, Emerson, Thoreau, you know, Hawthorne, Melville. We, we've got a significant literary tradition. And to me, the the 20th century King is is the representative of that. And you know, we got John Irving. Sure. Um, you know, and then Dan Brown tried, but King is still the king. We're very proud of that. We're very proud. Like Stephen King is one of our own. Yeah. So I think if you talk about the fact that there are those in the you know the literati who who find King lacking somehow, we're not there. You're not going to find that between Connecticut to you know to the Canadian border. if you look at what we've talked about tonight, we've talked about a lot of different aspects of, of, of King's skill and that we taught you know he's the king of horror. yes but that is not all that he's capable of. He's capable of short sure, literary fiction yeah. at the highest level and I, and I think frankly to me he's the best American short story writer since Vonnegut.
0: One does not simply luck into the O Henry award. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, and,
3: there's T. There's yes, and Boyle, but
2: okay. he's up there. And so the collection I want to talk about is um is, is different seasons, which frankly are novellas more than short stories, longer than short stories, shorter than a novel, not quite even a novella. Yeah. Uh, in different seasons, he sets out to tell sort of a cycle. The four of them, you'll know three of the four, uh, even casual observers, because the body is included, which people will know as the... Mm-hmm. The book that was adapted into Stand By Me yep. with Wesley Crusher. Yep. Uh, Apt Pupil, which Wesley was adapted into, <laughs> <laughs> adapted into a movie of the same name. He's not um, even Will
1: Wheaton anymore. He's just, he's just Wesley.
2: Shut, Wesley, up, Wesley. Yeah. <laughs> Shut up, Wesley. Shut
0: up, Wesley. So so it's forever known as the, as the movie where we almost got to see Wesley hit by a train. Like, oh, man.
3: <laughs> uh, exactly.
2: And like, like, like Picard, I root for the train every time. <laughs> And
3: that's a shame. Um, Will, Whe- Will Wheaton is a solid guy. Yeah, no, Will, Will <laughs> Wheaton's an awesome guy. Will Wheaton's an awesome guy. He, he From is.
2: All we can tell, he's a good dude. Much
0: love to Will Wheaton.
2: And, um, Apt Pupil, which to Tom's earlier point is probably one of the scariest things I've ever oh, read because horrifying. it's not about a possessed car, it's not about your buried pets coming back to life, it's not about a woman losing her brain. You know, it's not about Jean Grey losing it when she gets a period at the prom. It's not about any of that stuff. It is about <laughs> real evil that existed and continues to exist in our world. And a kid that is seduced by yeah, and li- and it. And lives among us. Scary. Yeah. Right. There is nothing scarier than that. And watching Todd descend from good kid into Nazi protege who winds up with a high powered rifle on the overpass and it takes him five hours to take him down. Yeah. That, that is Brutal. But yeah. for me, the best the best work in this and, and to me King's most complete work. Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. It is an absolutely tight narrative. Everybody knows it because everybody's seen the, the movie, because I think for a while there on TNT it was the only movie they owned. <laughs> um, I think you're right. And right. they had they were, you know, contractually required to play it seven times a day. If you've seen the movie, read the book. That's all I'll say about that because you get a lot more. You get like anything else, you get a lot more of the of the backstory of who Andy Dufresne is, of who uh, of who Red is, and, and who all the other supporting characters, Boggs and everyone else, um, are at, at at Shawshank. I think the reason for me this is a um, a moment of truth is like Irving, like Vonnegut. This is the kind of story I read, and it makes me almost despair of ever being able to tell a meaningful story. Yeah because it's just so tightly woven and the characters are so perfectly drawn and the story makes so much sense. And it has such a satisfying conclusion um, where everything pays off Yeah, from the very beginning, all the all the way through. For me, the moment of truth is the end when when read. And, and that, do I have to I don't have to sum this up for anybody, right? Like everybody knows the Basic, you know, I, 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 I think arc. everybody
0: does, but you know what? There's somebody out there who, who who probably doesn't. So you get to be their introduction to something wonderful. so well, God, take it away. God,
2: love them. Go, you know, go, go, pick up the book and then watch the movie later. But Andy Dufresne, who is a um, a young thirty-something banker in Maine, who was sent to prison for killing his wife, which he did not do, and he spends time there making friendship with this longtime con named Red. You get a lot of insight into prison life, and then eventually, Andy. Uh, behind a poster initially of of Rita Hayworth, but then through the years it changes to Marilyn Monroe and and others uh, as time goes on uses a, a tiny little rock hammer to dig through the wall and then crawl his way to freedom. It's a story about hope it's about a story about perseverance and about maintaining your dignity in the face of the degradation that occurs in institutionalization and it is absolutely uplifting and absolutely it's an almost it, to me it's an almost spiritual experience in, in storytelling and then in the human condition red who is his longtime friend who's been in forever and ever and ever who says i'll never be able to survive on the outside because part of the narrative is you know you get these guys they hate these walls and then they learn to get used to them and then you learn to depend on them and then you learn to love them and i did a lot of work in my uh, early in my career working in criminal justice research on on reentry for prisoners that were leaving jail or leaving prison and um, going back out into a world where there was none of the scaffolding and, and none of the support that they ca- had come to depend on inside. Mm-hmm. And they will intentionally commit crimes to go back inside and, so that they can be in a world that makes sense to them again. Yeah. Um, and Red is one of these cats, right? He's one of these guys It's like, I don't think I can make these bagging groceries at 65 years old. And he's asking permission when he can take a bathroom break because it's all he's ever known eventually he manages to get out and go meet his friend Andy and there's a, there's a sequence right at the end where he says he's got to go to Mexico where Andy is and he says i i hope i can make it across the border I, I hope the pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams i hope to see my friend again and shake his hand i hope and that last line i hope is the it sums up the entire yeah, yeah. book and and we love that so much and i know we're supposed to we'll get to it later but in the in the film it's it's uh, morgan freeman is read and his narration of that that coda um, my wife and I—that's the end of our wedding CD. Um, oh. it, it, it ends with "I hope," right? Like because that's all a wedding. That's all a marriage is—is is hope, right? Like, and <laughs> I so thought you're gonna say um... prison?
3: I hope we don't kill each other. <laughs>
0: <laughs> marriage is nothing but the slowest Joe break of all time, Bill. Let me tell yeah, you. Whoa, wait, camera, wait, 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 wait! wait, 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 wait a
3: <laughs> a that's oh. all I'm
2: saying. Hey, <laughs> hey, it's <a> Marilyn <laughs> Monroe poster on <laughs> a rock camera. That's yeah. all it is. But I love the I love the story. so much. And the book, like, to me, King has never written better mm-hmm. than, than in that. And, that. and that's why that's a moment of truth for me.
0: The Chopcher there, he's just such a protean writer. I mean, he, whatever seems to capture his imagination is what he's going to be writing about. And it just happened to be horror initially. And then it moved on to other things. And then I guess one point in time, he just wanted to tell a story about redemption and a jailbreak. You know, he could probably write a convincing story about anything. You know, and this story, I think this, this story really goes a long way to proving that. It's funny because there's been this like critical reevaluation of King in recent years and especially as his later work has been a little a little bit more I guess of a literary bent there aren't a lot of writers who offer you that kind of you know you know, what's behind the curtain? I don't know, man. Something cool. You know, whatever it is, it's gonna. It's you gonna, might not want to touch it. Yeah, you might, might not want to touch it. Might want to keep the lights on, but it's gonna range from cool to life changing. Who
2: knows what it could be? You know, when we think about when we think about prolific writers, right? We think about like you know James Patterson or, or something. Yeah, like this is not that. This is not a guy with a printing press who just does copy paste, change names, right? And, and off we
3: go. Yeah, King is absolutely unashamed to recycle ideas. I mean the stand uh, strikes me as a development of one of the first stories in night shift night surf i think it was called and yet he always seems to find a, a new way to express himself and yeah it, uh, the the guy is really remarkably versatile there yeah. there there's no doubt about that
2: good writers borrow great writers steal you know that but he he can steal from himself though, yeah, which is yeah. kind of awesome.
0: Well, because when he goes back to the, his his own well though, I get the sense that you know it's just because he's like, you know what? Wait a minute, I think I would actually like to write another. I'd like to write another story like this, but it's kind of like this other thing, and I'm not I'm not going to let that stop me. So I'm just going to go and do yeah, it as opposed to want to do it better. And, right, as yeah. opposed to some some writers who are just like, you know, what I got to crank something out. I don't have an idea. I'm just going to retread something just to just to fill the gap, and I'm just going to move on. And there doesn't seem to be that kind of cynicism in his writing. It's just like, you know, I, you know what? I think I wouldn't mind writing another story about X. I did it back in '85, but that's okay because I'm probably going to go a different way this time. Let's let's see yeah, what happens. I've got and, more to say. It, it, yeah, and and I I appreciate that air of exploration in his writing. You know, and, and he just he's just like, I've got an idea. Let's just let's just chase it and. There's a creative courage to that that I really admire.
2: One of the coolest things about King is he experienced commercial success early on. He, he yeah. really did, which I think was liberating and enabled him to explore a lot of different things, which a lot of aspiring writers don't have that luxury. Yeah. Of
3: course. It, it did also let him, you know, it, it freed him entirely from the constraints of editors.
2: Editorial constraint. I exactly. Mean, exactly. You know,
3: <laughs> like the, the editors have no power over Stephen King but they must
2: should
1: be so <laughs> imagine <laughs> working a job where your boss just has no power over you whatsoever
2: <laughs> that's like it's like you know honestly it's like um you know the eleven twenty two sixty three which i really enjoyed his, his book about the kennedy assassination we've talked about it a little bit where you know what it really needed was a, a savage independent editor you know because it's really two-thirds of an awesome book and a third of like oh my god where's the red pen yeah it's like you said, Stephen King hands it to the editor and says, here it is. And the editor says, what do you think about it? He goes, I think you should publish it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I think we're done here. <laughs> I think we're finished. I think, think yeah. I think I'm on to the next thing. Yeah, I think you we know, nailed and it in one, moving along. And the editor slash publisher is like, I'm going to publish it as is, and it'll sell a million copies. Yeah. So why would I mess with yeah,
0: it? Exactly, exactly. Why bother? So before we wrap things up, I want to do a thunder round because – one of the things about King is that so many of his books have been adapted into movies and television miniseries. I mean, I don't know of an author that I can readily recall whose work has been so frequently adapted to screen and often something would come out and then they would turn right around and try to adopt it. I mean like Michael Crichton is kind of of that vein, but he only put out like a, 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 a like slim, a yeah. slim <laughs> fraction of what King has put out, you know, and and, and Crichton was actually kind of, I think kind of, Cynical about it, he was just like trying to, try, trying to figure out like what is going to work by like like he had like the the the, yeah. the Talotron nine thousand and put in a couple things and you know <laughs> pull the lever and out pop you know Congo whatever, but <laughs> but, but it worked. It, it, no, it worked. I mean, he sold a lot of copies. You no, know, good for him. You know. Um but but I, I never got the sense of the joy of writing in him that I got that I got with King, right? But but King's has done a ton of movies and not a lot of them are great. I mean to be I mean there's a lot of drek in there to be it's frank.
2: But, That's probably part of, when you talk about his reputation, yeah. it's probably where it comes from. It's I not agree. about his writing. Yeah.
0: It's about his and I think a lot of those, And they're not his movies. Yes, and a lot of those movies were adapted. He didn't have a lot to say in it necessarily. And he's like, yeah, I'm just gonna cash the check and move on. And so that was I think a lot of the movies were done on a fairly mercenary basis. Just get it crank it out, collect the
3: green, move on and, you know, scrub our names off of it. (laughs) Right. Uh, Yeah. My, my, my impression is that like after frustrations with the first few adaptations, he was just like, screw it you all do what you want.
2: Yeah. Pay me and do what you want. Yeah, it,
0: yeah, because your movie is not my book, so we'll just take it from there. But yeah. but let's go through what everybody's favorite screen adaptation of of, of King is cuz um cuz there you know, even if you think a lot of them aren't that great, there are truly great ones in there. And and I'll start. My favorite King movie is Frank Darabont's adaptation of The Mist from 2007-2008. I'd never read it, but it was the first book on tape I ever came across. And it was actually recorded in this like really intense, like stereo sound kind of thing. And I was just like engrossed in this story. And it was just so freaking me out that like it has no easy conclusions, it has no real end. The world is kind of ended. And it's just this like freaky story. Like, what is going on here? And so, watching the movie, it was great. And the movie does have an ending. And I am not going to say what that ending is <laughs> because you could come to this movie a hundred years from now. That ending will be just as shocking to have somebody from you know twenty one twenty one than it's twenty twenty one. It is a it kind of slams it, Yeah, it is a it is an ending, <laughs> capital E ending. Okay, for a horror movie, for a movie that's fairly horrifying all throughout, and then it's like, and now get ready for this. Pa, and here's the ending. You're like, what the? You know. Kicking the teeth, kicking the teeth, <laughs> punching the kidney, <laughs> knife in the ribs. Uh, you know, it's it, yeah, it that ending does everything but set your own dog on fire. I mean, it is just <laughs> savage. It's a great monster movie, it's a great psychological horror movie, it's a great story about how people are the biggest monsters out there. Even when you have 10, <laughs> 10 story tall monsters literally walking outside, it's got heart, it's got tension, it's got jump scares, it's got revulsion. You know, I mentioned how. King is a master of horror, terror, and 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 revulsion. Terror is your anticipation of something horrible about to happen. Horror is your reaction when something horrible does happen, like, right? oh, my God, like the, the jump scare. And then revulsion is the, yikes, look at the body parts, right? Or, yikes, look at the <laughs> savagery, okay? and Giblets. Yeah, giblets everywhere. And he, in The Mist, you get a master class in all three, and it's just a really, really well-done horror movie, and I just freaking love it. And they re-released it in black and white as kind of a nod to the creature features of the 50s and it works even then like just as a black and white thing because everything's like in this weird shrouded mist it gets scarier actually because you can't see anything oh man I love The Mist so much it's it's such a great movie and I like a bunch of Stephen King movies but The Mist is like a step above for me I adore that movie it was such a good story
3: that was really impactful it was I, I, I love that show.
0: every time we drive to Cape Cod and see the sign I always go Hartford <laughs> it's just like the most chilling nobody knows what i'm talking about but if you know it's like it's just chilling like "Mm -hmm." so anyway um tom what is your favorite stephen king movie and why
1: uh maximum overdrive really (laughs) i'm kidding i'm kidding dude you can't
3: say that (laughs) i'm taking a sip of something what is wrong with you
1: Uh, I, I going to go with Pet Cemetery. Thank you, uh, and, and Bill. I know you have a very specific thing in this movie to figure out. I have a, I, I have one too.
3: Like, yeah. For me, oh, the I moment
1: do. of truth during that was like, okay, I'm taking, I'm, I'm sitting in the movie theater and I'm gripping, you know, my, my uh, armrest. Yeah. And I suddenly realize what I'm gripping my armrest over, and it's. Hey, Herman Munster is getting chased through a house by a toddler. That's scary. <laughs> like, I, I like I had to take a moment there to like figure, out. oh my God, like I am scared of yeah. a toddler chasing Fred Gwynn, like you know, played Herman Munster, <laughs> yeah. Through a house. He goes after him with a surgeon scalpel, and it's, yeah. it's not like there's this 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 thing that's burned into my brain after watching that. It's like when Fred Gwynn, like, you know. Recoils in horror and gets yeah. the step yeah. right across the Makes his smile just yeah. Yeah. that yeah. much wider. I'm like, oh, that creeped God. me out like nothing else. And like, yeah. I, I, I couldn't believe I was that scared of, of oh, that
0: moment. God, that it
3: movie's just a creep fest. <laughs> <Good. laughs> sometimes dead is better. Yeah, sometimes. The best <laughs> adaptation. <Yeah. laughs> of, of King's personally. <laughs> that movie, Tom. I'm, 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 I'm so with you. It's so good. It. I think it's one of his better novels. And that adaptation, that screenplay was absolutely fantastic. That was one of those movies where
0: it came out. I was towards the end of high school. My friends and I were seeing movies all the time. We kind of had the, um, the would-be cinephiles jaded notion of, I know what's going to happen next kind of syndrome, right? That like makes you the most annoying guy in the third row because you're calling out the movie as it's happening. <laughs> and Pet, Pet Cemetery like made you forget all that stuff pretty quick in the movie right and you're like you see gauge get plastered by this truck you're like yo they just killed a
2: kid what is that right, right? Like, what <laughs> is going on not here? not every
0: movie He's does that every- no it's like this is out of <laughs> hand
2: um what's the song the song let's let's not go away from the you know <sighs> i don't want to be buried yeah. in a pet yeah
0: Never, ha- I don't want to in my life again. Never have the Ramones given me less comfort than hearing that over the end of the credits because these <laughs> guys making out with zombie Tasha Yar. I'm like, stop and quit it. And the knife comes up. Like I just there another Tasha Yar, <laughs> dude, man. Everything in this movie freaked me out. This the spinal meningitis scene where she sees a vision of her sister coming at the screen and like it's all warped and twisted. My legs trembled like up and down. Like my body is. It's like. Like you know, like in Warner Brothers cartoons, when somebody's got to go real fast and their legs start moving and then their body like follows, it was like that. Like my legs decided enough is enough. We're the f out of here, coffin. We'll see you in the lobby. And my body was like my body's like I got I can't rooted to the spot. I'm too scared. That was, I think until I saw Exorcist three, I was never more frightened in a movie theater than when I saw Pet Cemetery. It messed me up. Oh
2: God. Go we'll see Cemetery it tomorrow if you yeah. haven't already. <laughs> I went to Pet Cemetery with a girl and nothing happened that night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We just how, that you, how, how, how could it? We, yeah, how, how could it possibly? I guess I'll just drop you Unless off. Just a corner. Let's just go home.
0: Ugh. You know, yeah, yeah. Good, good lord. All right,
3: so uh, Chris, what is what is what is your favorite Stephen King movie? Personally, think that that Tom nailed. It. I th- I think that Pet Cemetery was the greatest Stephen King adaptation other than maybe Misery. But my favorite, I've got to say The Shining. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's better than the book. You know, what happens in, in Room 237, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that is burned on your brain. <laughs> and uh, there, there's just so many moments in that movie that, that yeah. stick with you and, and horrify you. And Jack Torrance's descent into madness is perfectly believable. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's a great performance from Nicholson, of course, and, and Shelley Duvall. I, I like that movie a lot. Yeah, I, I think I think it's actually better than the book. And and that is not something you can say about many Stephen King properties. Joe, what is your favorite Stephen King movie?
2: I honestly I have no reason to move off my favorite Stephen King book uh, because Shawshank Redemption is not just maybe the, the the best movie made from a Stephen King book. It's one of the best movies of the last 30 years. It's got the most Academy you know, seven Academy Award nominations. And the fact that it lost out to that celebration of, you know, banal mediocrity, Forrest Gump, I can't believe that it lost out for best picture to that. The performance from Morgan Freeman. And, and honestly, if you, it's interesting if you go back, they were looking at Harrison Ford to play red. They were looking really? at Paul Newman. Yep. And I can see they Paul Newman a number
0: Harrison Ford, but it's it's kind of yeah, impossible I, to see anybody but Morgan Freeman given the is. course of history, you know
2: right and and it's interesting because in the book it's an irishman the the film itself is just it's so it's so tightly woven and it's so taut and the performances are so good and it's interesting because it's not like i look back like i look at Tom's, like pet cemetery like what a great entry into like the schlock genre right like that's a horror movie where you're you're having a good time and it's sloppy and it's fun and all this sort of stuff this is a film and, and it's a serious film and it's very faithful. To the source material it's indicative of, of the kind of quality of storytelling that king is capable of he's capable of some goofy stuff he's capable of of you know some some earthier stuff i think he's also capable of some of some really true literature that yeah. that transcends genre yeah. and, and the film version of shawshank i think is indicative of that
0: there's a reason why that movie kind of locked in on like the top spot on IMDb for like a long period of time. and became like the unassailable best movie on the internet kind of, kind of thing. And it's interesting because that, that position it held generated a backlash against Shawshank and people were trying to make their bones by sort of cutting away at the movie, which is kind of silly in, in the, in the, the credibility economy of the internet that people would decide, you know what, I'm going to make my bones hacking away at something that people widely regard to be, you know, relatively perfect as a movie. But All the things that you said that you loved about it in the the written version very much are are present in in the film version as well. One of those movies where you watch it and if you didn't tell somebody it was a Stephen King story and they didn't know, they may not necessarily think to go. But this must be a Stephen King story. It's, it's 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 just on its own wavelength, you know? Whereas, like, say, The Shining... You know, you could probably say, well, you know, know, great story, but Kubrick elevated it because Kubrick could elevate things, right? This is a story that didn't need elevation and, and was not elevated necessarily. It just had to be faithfully rendered and let it do its own work. So before we go, a final thought. When the U.S. National Book Foundation awarded Stephen King its prestigious Medal for Distinguished Contribution to American Letters in 2003, It placed King in the rarefied company of fellow recipients, such as Toni Morrison, John Updike, Ursula K. Le Guin, Elmore Leonard, Judy Bloom, and Studs Terkel. But not everyone was impressed. Harold Bloom, Yale's Sterling Professor of Humanities and the most famous literary critic of his age, called King's Award, quote, another low in the shocking process of dumbing down our cultural life. I've described King in the past as a writer of Penny Dreadfuls. But perhaps even that is too kind. He shares nothing with Edgar Allan Poe. What he is, is an immensely inadequate writer on a sentence-by-sentence, paragraph-by-paragraph, book-by-book basis, end quote. Now, when the BBC went back to Bloom some years later to see if he had changed his mind, Bloom doubled down, saying, quote, Stephen King is beneath the notice of any serious reader who has experienced Proust, Joyce, Henry James, Faulkner, and all other masters of the novel, end quote. Well, to that I say, f*** Harold Bloom. Not that King needs the likes of me to defend him, but come on. Since the beginning of his career, literary critics have dismissed, derided, and disdained King for the subject matter of his work, the style of his prose, and most of all, for the number of copies it moved. With every fresh bestseller, critics further viewed King as some kind of hack lucky enough to enjoy the good graces of a public that didn't know better than to disregard him. Their most charitable views of him were often as a necessary evil, someone who was getting millions of people to read enthusiastically, but was writing nothing that the critics themselves would have preferred. This went on for decades, until finally King began to enjoy a critical re-evaluation, as his body of work got too big and too diverse to pigeonhole, and his pile of awards got too mammoth to ignore. Comfortable in multiple genres, he unapologetically embraced his identity as a writer who was far more book club than literati. And if there is one thing the literati can't take, it's writers who neither want nor need their approval. King worked hard at his craft, practicing an authentic voice that needed little translation. With smiling self-deprecation, he has called himself, quote, a Big Mac with fries kind of writer. But to get a good idea of what writing really means to him, check out his truly outstanding book, On Writing, A Memoir of the Craft, in which he writes the following. I have written because it fulfilled me. Maybe it paid off the mortgage on the house and got the kids through college, but those things were on the side. I did it for the buzz. I did it for the pure joy of the thing, and if you can do it for joy, you can do it forever. There have been times when, for me, the act of writing has been a little act of faith, a spit in the eye of despair. The second half of this book was written in that spirit, I gutted it out, as we used to say when we were kids. Writing is not life, but I think that sometimes it can be a way back to life. That was something I found out in the summer of 1999 when a man driving a blue van almost killed me. So put another way, King's writing has helped to save at least one person's life. Harold Bloom's has probably saved none. But perhaps what is more meaningful is how King encourages others to take up the pen as well. He knows better than most how loudly the voices in our heads can get when they decide to dissuade us from pursuing something. When it comes to writing, those voices often win, but King is not having it. Quote, "'Writing isn't about making money, getting famous, "'getting dates, getting laid, or making friends,' he says in the closing words of On Writing. Quote, "'In the end, it's about enriching the lives "'of those who will read your work "'and enriching your own life as well. "'It's about getting up, getting well, And getting over getting happy okay getting happy some of this book perhaps too much has been about how I learned to do it much of it has been about how you can do it better the rest of it and perhaps the best of it is a permission slip you can you should and if you're brave enough to start you will writing is magic as much the water of life as any other creative art the water is free so drink drink and be filled up. This has been Moments of Truth. On behalf of myself, Tom, Chris, and Joe, thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more moments of truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com. Can we just back up for a second, though? Because I know we talked about this before we got rolling, but one more time. So, how was it that you got to be next to Stephen King at a Fenway Park game? Like, like was he like. sheer sure chance. So, so here's, a, so here's the was... thing he just bought a ticket. Like, he didn't just go to a box. He just bought a ticket and just sat where he sat.
2: Yeah, he bought two tickets, one for him and one for his driver. I think this was not long after his van accident. And um, we were about 10 rows back, halfway down the third baseline. And there were two seats open next to me. And after a couple of innings, uh, a guy materialized. And then next to him was Stephen King. And we spent about six, seven innings just shooting the bull. And it was one of the more surreal experiences, honestly, that, I, that I've had in my, uh, in my years.